All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. Whether you are joining us here on, uh, in person or online, we're so glad um, that you're here. Listen, we are in the middle of our series on the book of Ephesians. Um, and what we're looking at is basically like after Jesus' resurrection, right? After the very first Easter, uh, all of Jesus' disciples begin to go into all the towns and to um, make more disciples, to tell people about the good news. And there's one particular follower of Jesus whose name was Paul, who was sent by the Holy Spirit to travel around all of the known Roman world at the time and basically like tell people the good news of Jesus. And then as a result, as people were following Jesus, these communities of people came together or these churches came together in these different cities. Um, and Paul would travel around and he'd start that one. He'd stay there for a year or two or a couple months or something like that. And he'd go all around. Well, eventually word got out that Paul was like proclaiming that there was a new kingdom uh, in the middle of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire didn't like that a whole lot. Uh, because generally when you start proclaiming that there is a really powerful um, uh, new king in town and the people who are in power do not like that and so the powers that be um, go and find Paul they arrest him and they're given the chance to arrest him and then Paul is put in prison while he's awaiting trial now this feels like really really bad news except it was actually really good news for you and for me because while Paul is in prison he doesn't stop telling about the good news. Instead, what he does is he says, listen, if I can't travel there physically, I will write down words of truth and encouragement, and I will send those to the church. And we essentially have like some of the, the, um, some of the letters that Paul wrote that were circulated most widely, and that people were like, hey, this really, there's a lot of truth in here, and this represents the gospel so well. Those letters were preserved, and those letters became a part of the New Testament scriptures. And, and as you have the New Testament scriptures, maybe you have a Bible um, with you or a phone app or something like that, those letters, some of those letters are preserved in our New Testament scriptures. And one of those is the book of Ephesians. And that's what we've been looking at for the past two weeks. It's really an amazing book. It's probably one of my favorite letters that was written by Paul um, because what Paul basically does is in six chapters, he splits it up into two sections. The first half is like, hey, this is the gospel story. And then he declares this huge, therefore, this is your story. And that is sort of like a summary of what a breakdown, an overview of what the whole book is. This is the gospel story. Therefore, this is our story. This is how we're going to live out. And we're still in the gospel story part of this. We are actually only in chapter two, um, but it's so rich and it's so dense. It's kind of like we just, we can't, like there are some times where you go through um, scripture or whatever. Actually, we've been through the book of Ephesians before and we spent like three weeks on it or something. And it was like, pick a verse here and pick a verse there and pick a verse there but like i like if you really want to get it you got to dig deep so we're going a little bit slow where this is our third week and what i wanted to do um, is I wanted to have you turn to the people around you, and I wanted you to see if you could recall what we talked about in the first chapter of Ephesians. So we looked at Ephesians, I think it was like 1 through 
14, which actually in the original Greek is like one sentence, right? We talked about that, but in our language, like nobody could do it in one sentence, so it's broken up. And then we talked about um, 15 to 23. And so what I want you to do is to just turn to the people around you. I know not everybody in the room has heard or were here or out of town, all the things, um, all the things. But this is an opportunity for you to turn to the people next to you and see like, okay, what did I miss? What do I need to know? What's the recap? And if you need to pull up the scripture on your Bible in order to sort of cue you in and remind you or you want to grab the Bible next to you, that's fine um, uh, too. Uh, Just turn to the people next to you and try to get like a quick summary of what were the highlights, what were talked about thus far. And if you can't remember anything, then I, that's okay. I'm not going to feel guilty about that. Okay, go. Who was here? (laughs) And if you're joining us online, you can do this in the comment section also. I forgot to say that. All right, who wants to just share, whole group, one thing you remember from chapter one? And you don't have to like put it eloquently, just one thing you remember from chapter one of Ephesians. Blessings in Christ, Christ. that's right. God blessed us, that that is what he did in the past. It's happened, you don't have to earn it. God blessed us. And then Paul talks about all the different ways that we were blessed, that we were chosen, we were adopted, all of, we were redeemed and forgiven. All right, anything else anybody remembered? Yeah. We're the inheritance. We talked about that last week, that a lot of times uh, people read that part. Paul tells this prayer, and in that prayer, what he's praying for us is that we would be awakened to the hope that we have. It's the same hope that raised Christ from the dead, that we would be awakened to the fact that we're the inheritance, not that we get heaven as an inheritance after we die, but like God looks, I mean, we do, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you need to be awakened to the fact that God looks at us as his treasured possession. We're God's inheritance. Jesus died so God could get us as the inheritance. That's right. Anything else? I mean, I just, I the yes, the graphic from week one. Yeah. I should make more graphics. Yeah, yeah. It has God chose us in Christ in all the ways, or God blessed us in Christ with all the ways. Yes. 
and then you can pull it right up and see it. Yeah. And that we have power in Christ, that he, uh, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Great. Fantastic. Good job, everybody. If you want to like recap and go back and listen to those, you can actually find them by going to our website. You just go to clarksburgchurch.com um, slash sermons, and they're all there. Um, also, we have a podcast if anybody, like it is the sermons are the podcast. Like there's not extra bonus content. That would be really cool, though, but we don't have that. Okay, so we're going to dive into chapter 2 now. We're going to look at what um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. And remember that uh, when we take a break between, like, week 2 and week 3, Paul didn't take a break. Like, it's not like, okay, new thought. It's based on all the things that have been talked about so far. Based on this idea that God blesses us in Christ, that we're adopted and chosen. Based on the idea that he wants us to awaken to the power that we, the power in God, the hope that we have in God, the, that we are God's inheritance, and that we have hope and power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And then Paul continues in chapter two. He says, as for you... As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live. Now, here's why this is really important. Um, just, can we do like a quick show of hands? How many of you like grew up in some form of church? Okay, like that's the most people. Okay, then I won't even ask the other side of the question, which is like, uh, came to know Christ later, because you are here, but most of you, just based on raised hand, most of you grew up in church. Okay, so you might have a shared experience that I did. Growing up in church, I heard all of these things about me being saved, uh, and saved from my sins. The problem was, is that I uh, grew up in a Christian family where like, you weren't really allowed to make a lot of sins. Like, there were a lot of rules surrounding how many sins you were actually allowed to make, right? And so I was very protected. And that's not everybody's story. Like, some people grew up in a church, and, and you still were able to go all sorts of different ways, and, and, and that was just a part of your story. Um, but for me, that was not a part of my story. And so when people would talk about me being saved, I was like, yes, but I also was pretty good. Like, yes, but I never really did anything that bad. And so here's the problem. If, if that's a part of your story where you were like, I mean, I never killed anybody. Like, I was generally pretty good, right? When we read this, it's hard for us to put ourselves in this passage. That when we read this and it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. We sort of think like, well, I wasn't really dead. <laughs> like, I wasn't that bad. There wasn't that much sin. But let me clarify for you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not talking about the afterlife here. And here's how I know that. Because first, this statement is past tense. As for you, you were dead. Not you will one day be dead and then you will have life. Paul's saying you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. There's some way that Paul is sort of describing this sense that like you were dead, but you were also very much living. And it's hard to wrap our brains around that until we start thinking of different genres of movies that may have become popular over the past 20 years. Has anybody seen the movie series, The Walking Dead? Yes, yes. okay, good, we have an adamant yes. Uh, what about Warm Bodies? It's a personal favorite of mine. Yes, okay, good. Resident Evil, World War Z. 
Okay, uh, Disney zombie, Zombies 1, 2, and 3. Yes, okay, we got a fan of the Disney Zombies, right? It's the current high school musical of this generation, right? There is an entire um, genre of movies and TV shows and even some books that all wrap around this theme of zombies. And oftentimes we think that the idea of zombies is like a new concept, except for the fact that what Paul is actually, in some ways, talking about here is sort of this concept of zombies, That there is sort of this very real sense in which some people are physically walking around, living, but emotionally and spiritually they are dead. That they are dead. They have become deadened because of their own selfish choices that they've been caught in. That as people have tried to live for themselves and sort of create their own rules and gone after what they thought would help them get ahead, they have become more and more dead in their own selfishness. There's this reality that they might be moving around, they might be driving cars, they might be meeting up with people, but they aren't really living because they're not really free, they're just driven by trying to satisfy themselves. Now, in all the movies, it's like satisfy themselves with like eating brains or something, right? But, but in Paul's version of zombies, it's like satisfy themselves with their own selfishness, their own selfish desires. And as a result, they've become more and more deadened to the living God, to God's love, to his shalom, to his kindness, to his peace. And it's easy for us to sort of think of um, examples of people. Well, maybe it's easy. Maybe it's easy for you to think of examples of people uh, that fit into that category, maybe in your own life or even historically. People who were like real narcissistic. And you're like, oh yeah, that was a zombie. (laughs) Like they were living, but they were eating everyone's brains, right? They just were consuming their own selfishness. And it can be easy for us to like think of those sorts of examples. But what Paul's saying is like, Not as for Hitler, not like as for Putin, not like as for fill in the blank, your mother-in-law, just kidding, right? As for whatever, not that. Paul says, as for you, as for you, you were dead in your own selfishness. You were dead. You were walking around like a zombie and you didn't even know it. You were driving the car, you were making breakfast, but you were really dead in your own selfishness, you. Paul's understanding and his depiction of human beings and human nature is not real bright. It's not real bright. Although he did believe that God at one time created us good, he's saying, listen, we are now so filled with brokenness and selfishness that we are deadened. We are selfish, plain and simple. We make choices based on our own desires that lead to our death. But Paul is also saying that the degree to which you and I are dead is about more than just our selfish choices that we make. Now, if you keep reading, we're going to read the next couple verses, and I want you to pay attention to this one word, follow. I think it appears in different forms. I think it's like followed and following, but but follow. Pay attention to what Paul says after those words. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh 
and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All right, turn to the people next to you real quick and tell them, like, what were we following? What does Paul say we were following? Just turn to the people. You can look at, we can go back on this slide. You can look at this one. You can go back to the other. What were we following? Good. Excellent. Okay. So when Paul says, he says, listen, you used to be dead when you followed the kingdoms of this world, the rulers of the air, the spirit who's now worked, you, when you were following your desires and your flesh. Now, in a very, very real sense, Paul is saying that the world that we know it is the way that it is because of our selfish choices. Like, you are dead because you made some selfish choices and you sinned and all of those sorts of things. But he is also saying that there are realms of creative beings that have influence in human behavior and in history that we cannot see. Paul is proposing this reality that includes other dimensions that exist that we can't perceive with our five senses, that in effect, that, that affect the world that we live in. He's talking about the kingdom of this world. He's talking about the spirit who's at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about the rulers and the ways of this world. These are like unseen forces that just exist in a dimensional that we can't see. Now, if it's really difficult for you to believe that there are dimensions that like we can't perceive, the reality is, is like in the past 150 years, there's been all sorts of science and math that has concluded like, yes, there are dimensions that we cannot perceive and we cannot see. So this isn't just some religiosity thing, right? We've got string theory and quantum physics and all sorts of different things that like have point to the fact that we don't know what it is, but the science and math is there that there are some sort of influences that we cannot see we cannot perceive with our own eyes. And Paul's just saying, like, yes, yes. There are kingdoms and forces of this world that they are, they are doing things. They are influencing the things that we can see. Throughout the biblical narrative, Scripture is actually asking all of us to consider that there is a spiritual reality that we can't see, that influences us both personally, which is what we're going to talk about today, and as a whole society, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. And it influences us to sort of take our own proclivity to selfish choices and actually turns them into these epic messes, like bigger than we could ever make on our own, epic messes. So let me give you two examples of how you hopefully can see how this plays out. In World War I, I mean, World War II, there was the destruction of six million Jews neurodivergent people, black people, all sorts of minorities, people that didn't fit with um, the German and Nazi understanding of what the superior race was. Who was responsible for six million people dying? You could say, well, it was Hitler. Like, Hitler led this. Yes, that's true. You could say, like, well, it was all the people who followed Hitler. Yes, there were lots of people making individual choices in order to support this thing. But in some ways, there was also something bigger than that. Like, how was it possible that an entire culture of people could be convinced to go along with saying yes to this concept of a superior race and think, yes, that's a good idea? Right? 
Paul would look at that historically and he would say, that's, that's evidence of the powers of the kingdom of the air. That's the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. That, that's what that is. It's, it's bigger than just the individual choices. Yes, individual choices were made, but then there was the spirit behind it that was influencing it to make it a huge, catastrophic mess. Now, before you think that that just happens in sort of global events, to really, really bad guys in really, really bad situation, I want to give an example of how I think this happens in our own lives, maybe on a weekly basis, all right? Think of a relational conflict that you've experienced. Maybe it was with um, a spouse or a sibling. Um, it could be somebody at work, anything, a relational conflict that got really, really heated, right? And as things are heating up and you are exchanging words, chances are at some point in the exchange, there is a thought that pops up in the back of your head that says, don't say that. D don't say that. And you're like, yeah, I know not to say that because that, that, really that would really be destructive. Don't say that. Don't say it. Don't say it. And then what do you do? You say it. You say it, and you knew the moment before you should not have said it, and you even know the moment after I shouldn't have said that. You immediately regret what it is that you have said. You knew it was wrong the moment before and the moment after, but you did it anyways. And I think that this is the human's experience of evil and those powers in the rulers of the kingdom of the air. Who made that decision to say it? In a really real sense, you did. Like, like you, you, your selfishness, you made that decision. But also, but also, if you've ever experienced that, there's sort of this impulse inside of you and, and it made you say it. Like, that impulse feels alien. You know that you shouldn't have done that. It's, it's me that said it, but it's also not me. It's not who I really am. And, and in that moment, evil exploited, exploited our own weakness and our own frailty to take our selfishness and make an even bigger mess. And this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, listen, you're selfish on the basis of just being selfish, but you were dead in the water because these forces and these influences that exist in our world are all over us. Now, if what you're thinking is like that little devil on your shoulder, the red pitchforky guy, like cast that out of your mind because that's not what we're talking about, right? That is um, uh, people in European churches that imported Greek mythology into Christianity, right? Because the church held all the power at the time, and so they didn't want to let go of their Greek mythology, so they just like imported it and said, oh yeah, this is what the devil looks like. No, 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 no. That's, that's not what we're talking about. This is a real experience of evil that we can't see but has influence in our world. Now, that's not to say that every, like, selfish thing you've ever done is, like, evil. Like, we're not devil under every rock or anything like that. Sometimes we're just selfish. Like, sometimes that's just what it is. But sometimes it's more than that. In fact, when Paul says that we were followers, that word followers of the kingdom of the air, that we were following our selfish desires and craving, um, 
there's the word following is actually a really weak translation for that word. It really doesn't mean like, hey, everybody else was doing it, so I just decided to do it too, because like, jump off a bridge, whatever, that's fine. It's, it's not that, it's actually better translated as you were mastered. You were enslaved to the ways of this world. You were mastered by the kingdom of the air. You were enslaved to the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And what Paul is saying is that because of our own selfishness and the ways that we were influenced and enslaved to the evil in this world, we are the walking dead. We might be moving around. We might be looking like we're alive. We might even choose to do some good things some of the time. But we are actually alienated from the life of God and being spiritually alive. And when the Bible and Christianity talks about needing salvation or needing to be saved, this is what it's talking about needing to be saved from. Here's the deal. Sometimes doing good is the greatest cover for being dead. Right? Sometimes we run around and we like, well, I'm taking care of this person and I'm doing this thing and I'm doing this thing. Right? right? But, but the reality is, is like there's no better self-serving thing than doing nice things for other people. Because sometimes when we do nice things for other people, like, they'll do nice things back for us. Sometimes when we do nice things for other people, it feeds our ego. It feeds our feeling that we are really alive and we're just fooling ourselves. We're just fooling ourselves. And so we need to be saved. Fortunately, this is the precise reason why Jesus comes. And Paul says it like this. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. That God loved us so much that God refused to leave us in our deadness. God saves us by making us alive in Jesus. And then Paul tells us how that happened. First, you have to understand that it is by grace that you have been saved. You were dead Oh, Princess Bride, all-time cult classic favorite movie, right? My kids have still not seen it, and we need to plan a movie night so they can watch Princess Bride, because that is a good movie. But there's a famous quote in The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya goes to Miracle Max, right? And he asks Miracle Max, is he dead? And guys, do you know what he says? He says there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive, but with all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Can anybody finish the quote? Rifle through his pockets and look for a loose change. Nobody knew that. That's okay. That's okay. Here's, here's what, uh, what, what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, you were so dead that you were all dead. Like there wasn't like slightly dead or mostly dead where you could still like lift a finger and say like, hey God, like something. No, no, no. What, what Paul is saying, what we're talking about, when we're talking about our death and transgression and sin, we are all dead, totally and completely. We are enslaved and we are mastered. And so there's nothing that you can do to earn yourself to be brought to life again. What Paul's saying is you being brought back to life is all out of love. This was all by grace that you were saved from death. And so that's how when Christ, who was full of life, 
He takes on flesh. He enters into this realm that we can perceive. He makes himself killable. He experiences death. But unlike you and I, Jesus, who was fully God, is able to conquer death, unlike you and I. Jesus was fully God, and he conquers death. Jesus has so much life that even death can't hold on to him. And so when he rose, he was seated at the right hand of God, and this is a place of honor. And then God does more. There's something more that God does. In verse 6, we read this, and God raised us up. So after Jesus is raised up and placed at a seat of honor, God turns around and he looks at all of us, and he, dead in the water, walking dead, zombie people, and he says, I'm going to raise them up with Christ. And I'm going to seat them with him, with Jesus in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ. This is huge. We are seated in a place of honor where the resurrected Jesus sits. Now, physically, we don't sit there, right? We're not there. And when Paul talks about this, it's actually past tense. It's not like, hey, in the future, after you die, you get raised up and seated. No, no, no. It's actually past tense. You were raised up. You, it happened already. Now, physically, we're not there. But, but legally, Paul is talking about legally, we are there, that God looks at us and he treats us like his own son. The kindness that is ours in Jesus is not sentimental, but it's filled with action. Like, think about this. In our selfishness, we try to get everything for ourselves that God deserves. But in God's love for us, God, God put himself in the position that we deserved so that we could sit where he deserved. This is salvation. This is a gift. And this is mind-blowing. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Now, when we think of boasting, no man can boast, no person can boast, we think of bragging. Nah, 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 nah. I got this, you didn't. But when ancients heard this idea that no man can boast, it was so much more than that. Boasting was something that you did right before you went into battle. In fact, um, you guys know a couple weeks ago I had COVID, and so I was in bed resting, and um, I stumbled upon a epic series. I'm not saying everybody should watch it, but it's pretty good. It's from the History Channel called Vikings, and it is six seasons of delightfulness, in my opinion. Um, so I binged this, um, got no time, nothing to do, uh, but rest and watch Vikings, right? And one of the things that was fascinating, they were a vicious warrior people, right? Like we, we know that they have the reputation and, uh, and I watched the whole thing with my phone in hand, Googling what is really historical and what is just made up entertainment, right? So I'm like looking, is, is this person really real? Was Ragnar really exist? Like, like who are these people? Is that how it really went? Are these real kings, right? I'm going through the whole thing. I'm watching, uh, I'm Googling the whole thing to try to figure out what is real and what is not. And what is real is that they were ferocious warriors. And they would charge into battle and they would know that some of them would never come back. 
And no matter how brave they were and how fighting was engraved in their culture, you cannot tell me that that is not a scary position to be in. And so every time they were about ready to go into battle, they would get themselves ready to face whatever it was that was going to be before them, and they would say things like this. I am Bjorn Ironside, son of Ragnar Lothbrok. These are actually characters in here. Son of Odin, king of Ketkada. I have the strongest sword of any warrior, and if you're with me, no one can touch us. And if we fall in the battlefield tonight, we will feast with Odin in Valhalla. Do your worst, right? This is what they would say. They would like brag about how great they were and how they were gonna, they, they were gonna get all the awards and all the acclaim and all the things, right? This is boasting. This is what Paul is talking about. They would boast so that they would have all the confidence in the world that whatever battle came to them, they could face it. That whatever anyone is doing, we, we, whatever, whoever we are, we're not Vikings, so we don't boast like this, but what we do, do we all boast. We sort of choose the certain things to make us feel like we aren't dead man walking. That we have the longest sword. That we're the most powerful. We get promotions and we say, I got this promotion. I have this bank account. I got these grades. I've done these good deeds. I hold to this religious uh, criteria. And sometimes we even like do this purposefully. We like set out to accomplish something and we sort of even do it with the mindset of like well whatever else happens I want to be able to say that at least I did this at least I did this I want to be able to say look look at all the battles that I've won surely I can face this one too and when we become a follower of Christ what Paul is saying and that is that it's a, it's the end of boasting it's be, because you know that your ability to face Death or whatever it is that is coming to you has nothing to do with your accomplishments. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It's sort of like when you become a follower of Jesus, what you're actually saying you will do is that you will step onto the battlefield and you'll say, I'm Beth Wolf. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a child of God. I've done nothing. I've accomplished nothing but Jesus has done everything for me, so let's go, right? That is essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying that we let go of all other boasts except Christ because this salvation has freely been given to us. Too often, like that is what faith is. And too often we describe faith as sort of a set of beliefs or sort of some moral lines in the sand that we either uphold or we vote for or something like that. But even those things are things that we could potentially try to battle for. And what scripture is telling us is all you have to do, like if you really want to be saved, if you really want to follow Jesus, you have to sort of let go of all of those things and rest in Jesus, that he is the only thing that we have to face death, to face conflict, to face pain, and we let go of every other thing that we might boast in. Everything we have is a gift. Jesus is a gift. Your life is a gift. Your salvation, all from Jesus. 
Now, that may sound like what I'm encouraging you to do is like, hey, you're supposed to rest. This was actually like a wrestling match that I went through this, this week as I was processing through the scripture, right? It sounds like, well, if all we're supposed to do is rest in Jesus, then like, like let's not do anything. Like, let's take it easy. Let's like bask in the sunlight. Like, let's stop even trying. But Paul continues in verse 10, and then we're going to wrap this up. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God God prepared in advance for us to do. Somehow when we boast only in Jesus and we rest in him as the only thing to our name, it brings us life from the dead in life we used to be living. We step into a life where we are God's handiwork. We're a special, unique creation that you find on Etsy. We're created in Christ to do good work. And it's not that once we're saved through trusting and resting that we don't do anything other than resting. It's quite the opposite. It's before you were so dead, you couldn't actually do anything. You thought you were, felt like you were. You were really busy trying to do things, but you were doing nothing. You were mastered and enslaved by sin and selfishness. But now that we are alive in Christ, we are set free to do the very things that God created us to do. And I'm going to admit it. I am an all or nothing person, and I do not like living in this tension. I want it to be either that I work really hard and strive and struggle and accomplish all the things, or I want it to be I rest and I do nothing. (laughs) And the frustrating thing about Jesus and the call that he has on our lives is to do both. To live in that tension to say, I rest, rest completely in Jesus, but because I am a created being, God has prepared things for me to do, and here is the best way that I can explain it. I was visiting a friend of mine this week, and she was recently diagnosed with cancer, and the diagnosis came out of nowhere. It sort of snuck up on them, and uh, as a result, it's going to require um, several surgeries, radiation, chemo, like the whole gamut of things, and the prognosis is not good, I mean, the prognosis is good, but it is life-altering. And uh, it was interesting because as we were sitting, she was reflecting on her own life. She's an extremely driven person, um, high-achieving, like work is very important and all-consuming in her life. Uh, She works on very important things, and she gets stuff done. And with this diagnosis, she finds herself in a position where she's sort of stepping away from all of that, right? She's stepping away from all of it. Everything she used to have to go after and accomplish and make happen is now kind of meaningless in the face of this diagnosis. Uh, For her, there's really like no point in going after any of those things because none of those things are going to save her. They won't help her face what is next. And the other thing is no one expects her to pursue those things anymore. What she's finding is that for the first time in her life, she is free. She's free to use her energy and her time only on the things that she was created to do. She's free to rest in the sunlight when she needs to, but she's also free to invest in the relationships that are closest to her. She's free to align herself with people in suffering and pain, marginalized women, and advocate for them in a way that she never could have before because she was so busy trying to accomplish all of the things, being enslaved by all of the powers of this world. 
Now, for some of us, living in that tension is really hard. But I think that as we become free, as we rest in Jesus, it becomes more clear what it is we're being called to do. And if you struggle with that tension, I want to tell you, I'm right there with you. I'm on that journey trying to figure that out, too. But you are free because of Jesus. And for some of us, like, this isn't the first time that we've heard that, but perhaps today it hit you in a new way, or you need that truth to speak to some area of your life. And I want to pray for you that it will, that you will experience an awakening in Christ. For others of you, this is the first time you've ever really heard that, and and you, like, want to become fully awakened to all of this, and I want to pray that that is you also. Let's pray together as we invite God to bring us to life. Father God, I am so grateful for who you are. I'm grateful... um, That you didn't just look at us as as we were dead in our transgressions and say, well, I, I, I can't do anything for you. Like, that's your problem. Try to figure it out. But instead, because of your great love for us, because of your abounding compassion and grace, because you wanted to show the whole world your kindness, you died in our place and raised to life, but also raised us up with you. And so, Father God, we ask that you would raise us up, that we would become a more uh, awakened and alive to the ways that we no longer have to boast in anything because we have you. We can rest in you. We can stand before whatever it is we have to face and know that it is because of you that we boast. Because of you, we can face whatever battle. So, Father God, during this next song, I ask that you would speak to us the places where we are holding on to you, the places um, that, that we are still holding on to other things. We are still trying to take armor in our accomplishments. And, Father, would you open up our hands to let those things go and cling only to you. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.